There's a beautiful view of Mount Wachusett and the, the moon, which looks full, was rising. And it just arrested me for a moment. And in that moment of just standing there, feeling, looking at the moon and the view, which was beautiful, and the sense of silence, but it wasn't really silence. There's a plane going overhead. My body felt cold, a little tired. I was still in talk, Bardo. And it was both beautiful and just stuff happening. But such a, just a sense of the, the isness of things. Now, that's a moment of perfection, not that anything in particular happening is perfect, but the perfection of uh, just total presence, total isness, you know, where what's the problem kind of moment, you know? So the question, of course, is how do we get so far from that so fast? What we're exploring together all these weeks and in all these talks. And what I want to talk about tonight is one of our strategies for causing ourselves immense suffering, uh, which is um, aversion, in particular, a form it takes occasionally of judging, especially self-judging. I know for some of you this is a foreign concept, (laughs) but to others of you, there might be moments when you can relate. So I want to talk about this tonight. And really... It's similar to how I started my talk last week. Personally, I feel that the dilemma of our getting lost in aversion, the dilemma of aversion itself, of understanding how we get into aversion, is basically we get into aversion by not deeply, cellularly knowing the first noble truth. You remember? The first noble truth. Just in case, this is from the Buddha. Now this, bhikkhus, is the noble truth of dukkha. I'm going to say dukkha instead of suffering. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Illness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair of dukkha. Separation from what is pleasing is dukkha. Union with what is displeasing is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. He's very precise. I mean, really quite precise, you know. And then in brief, the five aggregates when subject to clinging the five khandas, when subject to clinging, are dukkha. It covers a broad range. He doesn't say, some people get out of here without experiencing that. It's a noble truth, the understanding of which, the clear seeing of which, is the beginning of the road to liberation, right? That's the whole point of it. And so I really feel personally that the struggle with aversion and self-judging being a subset of aversion is on a very deep level not getting it that this stuff happens. And there's no way in this mind and body on this planet We're going to have a life where it doesn't happen. And it's not your fault. Get it? That's the basic drift. (laughs) At least in the beginning, (laughs) it's not your fault. But we add in quite a little dash of extra along with that. So... We've talked often about how the first noble truth seems obvious. We've talked about impermanence as one aspect of this first truth, and I don't want to belabor this point. 
Although, I actually think it couldn't be belabored too much because our habit, our tendency, our deep-rooted habits of somehow um, thinking, and it's not really a conscious thought, that we can figure it out how to avoid, deny, or get away from the first noble truth. You know? That's why I think it can't be talked about enough because somewhere deep down we keep hitting that place where if I can just somehow get around it, I'm not going to have to go through this. If I can just somehow hold myself separate from this unpleasant experience, and I should be able to, you know, that's sort of where aversion and self-judging comes from. So I don't want to belabor it, but you can see that it's not only our personal tendency, it's in our whole society, the way that we keep the really suffering elements of society, if we can, segregated in their little private place. Nursing homes, hospitals, you know, insane asylums, places for people who are really sick, keep all the really poor people, you know, in the inner city or way, way out in the mountains, you know, so you don't have to run into them in the nice sections. Um, The effects of famine or war or poverty or earthquakes, you know, we look at it for a little while if it's not immediately affecting us on the news, and that's good, you know, we need to open to it. But I can see, I've been watching in my own mind lately, because there's always something new on the news to open to, how my mind can really be with it for a minute, and then if it feels like it might be getting too close to home, in other words, an earthquake in Gujarat, that's really intense. But after all, it is in Gujarat, and after a day or two, it can kind of recede into the background, except for the people who live in Gujarat, where it's still going on even years later. But when it feels like something might be happening that might actually be coming too close to home, that I can't just say, it's not like, oh, well, you know, but we just, it's a natural thing. We get caught up in our day-to-day. I was noticing the other day how my mind would be right with some, some fear of suffering. Nothing horrible is happening yet. Nothing horrible is happening. Just the day-to-day stuff, okay? So don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I just thought I should re- reassure you. <laughs> just the Congress is bad enough. Um, so seeing how my mind could get caught up and into things of the future, and this is affecting me, and what can I do, and and then see how it would hit a place where, but it's really a beautiful fall, and it's not happening now, so let's just be here now. You see what I mean? It's not exactly be here now. Let's be here now and not think about that. It was actually a very interesting moment. It's the first time I felt, I could really feel how it happens, how I was projecting, how one could be in the midst of uh, something really terrible. I've been reading a biography of Anna Akhmatova, who was a Russian poet who lived you know, from the early 1900s to the 60s and through all, all those phases of a great deal of suffering in Russia and the Soviet Union and the times of the Stalinist terror and how it affected so many people and how the people it doesn't affect. I really saw that moment, how it's possible to just keep going on with your day-to-day life, kind of really not letting it in what's going on around you, because it just feels too unbearable. It was an interesting moment to see how the mind can do that. Well, in some ways, that's a protection. I mean, I'm not trying to put that down or criticize it. I just think it's interesting to see the powers of denial and avoidance, the patterns that are deeply ingrained in us, and on a societal level, also on a personal level. And that's what we can explore here together in our practice. And our practice is a microcosm of our whole life, of the whole society's life. And so the stuff that goes on here in our mind is a great place to explore the nature of aversion and particularly tonight's self-judgment. 
So even when intellectually we agree, oh yeah, we know that difficult stuff happens, we see there's a tendency to avoid and deny, and that's <clears throat> not so helpful. Still, I think it's a deeply ingrained habit. And when I look at it almost biological in its, in its uh, source, so for example, if we put our hand, we don't know the stove is on, and we put our hand on the burner and burn it, we don't have to think unpleasant, unpleasant, the wise thing would be to remove my hand, you know, it's away. And if we're mindful, we just do that. It's a natural, intelligent response, a reflex, really. And that's the end of it. So that's what I mean by biological. You know, we pull back from pain, from suffering. And that's quite useful. But what I've noticed in my own mind is that that reflex can come into play whenever the attention or the consciousness comes into contact with any unpleasant sense experience. And in that pulling back, which often doesn't particularly solve anything because often the unpleasant experience just keeps on going, you know? It's an unpleasant sound, or you're feeling physically ill, or you're feeling a sense of pain or hopelessness or boredom or whatever. When we pull back, just that reflex action, instead of everything just going away and it's all hunky-dory again, which is what we would like to have happen, what tends to happen in that gap, it's a disconnect, right? It's a moment of really consciousness attention is not connecting with what's happening. And in that moment, in tends to rush. And really, when your mind's kind of quiet, it feels like a rush. Our old friends, the kalesa of dosa, aversion, you know, just like, boom, it comes springing up. And it can manifest, as Myoshin was talking about last night, it can manifest as blame, as anger. You know, so say if it was to the stove, because that makes it so obvious. That stupid stove, I can't believe it. Who left that stove on? And you know, and it gets going and going. Or it can manifest as anger turned towards ourself. You stupid jerk. What are you putting your hand on the stove for? Don't you know any better? Or it can turn into fear and spiraling into, oh, the stove's on now, and what if the stove was left on for a long time and the whole house could have caught in fire, and what if I'm beginning to get Alzheimer's and I'm leaving the stove on, and, you know, and it goes on and on and on. But that becomes a habit, and in that pulling back, that moment of aversion, when we're not mindful, when we don't notice that, it spirals out of control. It has a life of its own, whether it's aversion, blaming, inner or outer, or fear, to the point that the fear or the aversion takes over. And it in itself is so unpleasant that it gives rise to more of the same, you know, to the point that we're kind of lost in either hysterical state of fear or aversion, but in either way, almost afraid to look at what's actually happening. So for example, you know, the, the feeling of, I mean, this is an it's a little bit exaggerated, though I know it happens to people, where you're just feeling, all of a sudden you feel some lump somewhere on your body, and this is a really yogi mind thing. Immediately it would jump to cancer or melanoma or something, and then the mind starts getting more and more afraid <clears throat> to the point where people will say, well, I don't want to go to the doctor, because what if I find out it's cancer? You know? So rather not looking, and the fear just keeps on spiraling and spiraling. We're looking, just meeting what's happening, a wise response is possible. Plus, all that extra fear is gone. So you see what I mean? The Mark Epstein puts it that it's our fear of experiencing ourselves directly. It's our fear of experiencing the moment directly that actually creates the suffering. But we get lost in the reaction and forget that we actually have the capability to look at the moment directly. And that's really what our practice is about. Recognizing that it's the opening to truth, to things as they are, is what I mean by truth. Just the simple things as they are in this moment. 
The opening to that is what frees our heart from fear and selfishness. Just like looking at the moon, it's not like it has to be some transcendent experience. It's just that moment of opening to what is without comparison, without judgment. In that moment, the heart is freed from fear, from selfishness, from judgment, from separation. Resting at ease in whatever arises. And so, in some ways, with aversion, and I'll get to the self-judging part, our, our task, if you could put it that way, that comes to us through the practice, through our devotion to wakefulness, to our devotion to presence, is to find that capacity of what you could call bearing witness to suffering, bearing witness to dukkha in whatever aspect it's presenting itself, in the moments that it's presenting itself. I'm talking about aversion. There are many moments when dukkha is not the main thing presenting itself. Notice those too, right? I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about tonight, but I just need to put it in. <laughs> dukkha, unpleasant arises a lot of the time. Pleasant arises a lot of the time, as does neutral, you know. I'm just talking about aversion and self-judging tonight. It's not the whole picture, okay? (laughs) Just remember that when you start to sink into a slough of despair. It's just one side of the picture. But really that, that capacity, the greatness of heart that is displayed when we or anyone is, is willing just for a moment, for a period of time, to bear witness to whatever aspect of suffering is arising, to me is, I, I find over history, incredibly inspiring. I mean, the reason I'm reading that biography of Anna Akhmatova is because some of her poems uh, have touched me very deeply. And the sense, she's very famous in Russia, really for being sort of a person who was willing to stay through all the suffering and starvation and war and purges while husbands and sons and friends were arrested and shot and starved to death and committed suicide. And she could have left, along with many of the intelligentsia and the literary people uh, at the time of the revolution or the civil war in the late in the, just before the 20s or in the early 20s. And she always chose to stay out of love for Russia, love for the Russian people, and a sense of that was her calling, to bear witness, you know. And I mean, her life was hell in many ways. But that, that power, that purity of presence that uh, lights us up to a possibility of freedom, a greatness, an ennobling aspect, of heart and mind, also can shine through. And I've found that those are the people who always inspire me in literature, in history. Like when I, um, things I've read about Dr. Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King, I remember one place I read a statement he made after one of the times in Birmingham when a, a church was bombed, and if you remember that, and four young girls were killed in the bombing. And it was pretty horrible. And he said, let me get this right. In the face of this, he said, you know, I refuse to become bitter. Hatred must never be our motive. You know? and, this, and then the, with that ability to keep meeting, you know, the suffering day after day. doesn't necessarily mean being an activist. It might mean being a poet. It might mean just being a silent witness. And it doesn't mean we have to be the witness of the great um, historical movements of an age, bearing witness to your own suffering here on this retreat with that, that quality of steadfast presence is just as ennobling, is just as freeing, because it, 
It frees us from the limitations of our small sense of separate self and holding myself separate and me, me, me. And it opens us again to the vastness of things as they are, of non-distinction, of equanimity, really. Equanimity being that quality of mind that can simply be with touch, not having to pull away the unpleasant, the pleasant, the neutral, and see it clearly. It's like the ocean was saying last night, not the diluted equanimity that's touching but doesn't really have a clue in life what it's touching, but that's really there, seeing clearly, and can just hold it, a steadfastness. It really inspires me. And I see when I look to the people, you know, reading about or that you meet or hear of, the people you know in your own life or yourself, I see that the quality that we can really explore here that allows for this this, uh, bearing witness, this steadfastness of heart and mind, is that we can also have to be able to turn that same kind, steadfast presence back onto ourselves, you know? Because the suffering we can't bear out there, so to speak, out there, it's really what, what we're feeling in here that's so hard. You know, so it's always bearing witness to ourselves. And I've noticed in myself over and over, sometimes it takes me a while to remember, but that whenever I'm going through a period in daily life, too, not just on retreat, where I'm feeling more alienated or dissociated somehow or disconnected, dissatisfied, you know, just that something's off, something's wrong. It can be minor, it can be really major. I've always found, finally, that what's going on really deeply is that on some level I'm trying to avoid or deny or get away from something painful or something unpleasant. You know, and it might be some difficult situation in my family that keeps coming up in my mind and I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm anxious and worried and the mind says, can't they just you know, sort themselves out and quit pro- bothering me, you know? They're fine. They're doing their thing. I'm the one waking up in the middle of the night. You know, where's, where's the suffering? And whenever I come home to, oh, yeah, this is anxiety. This is fear. This is guilt. Whatever it is, there's a sense, really, of coming home. I found the refuge of the Dharma again. Because, as I said the other night, we are the Dharma. Unpleasant suffering, birth, loss, death, it all occurs in us and outside of us. No difference. So when I can come and open into it, sure, I feel the sadness or the fear, whatever it is, more fully. But in that moment, there's a sense of of the vitality, the beauty, the intensity of life again. There's not that separation anymore. It's just the isness. In this moment, isness happens to be grief. But there's no problem with that really in the moment. And I know a lot of you have experienced this because you talk about it in the interviews. We fight, we fight, we struggle, we hit our head against the wall, and finally, because there's no other option, we surrender. All right, I'll just feel it, you know? It's like, oh, oh yeah, somehow it's a relief. How could that be, you know? Because we're so deeply ingrained to do other. But opening to how it is, it ennobles us. But the, the habits, the denial system, I said it feels to me almost biological. It's strong. We each have our own particular flavor, our own particular Sakaya Ditti personality view and personality structure, our own way of denying and avoiding dukkha. Um, the one I want to point to tonight is this one of judging or self-judging. It's a very prevalent, at least in this Western culture, system. You might ask, that's a denial system to avoid uh, unpleasantness, to avoid suffering, you know? It seems to create more. Well, yes, it does. It's a rather flawed denial system, (laughs) which is all the more amazing that we so stubbornly keep holding on to it and giving it so much belief and so much energy. 
At least I do. I speak for myself. So one thing I've seen, there's lots of different things one could say about judging and how we get caught in it, but particularly self-judging. One thing that I've been noticing a lot in recent years in my own experience that if, if coming from the unconscious belief or ideal, basically the denial of the validity in some way of the first noble truth, the sense that you know, sorrow, suffering, grief, loss is wrong. Wrong in the sense it should not be happening. Now, I'm not here to say that we're in favor of famine or war or anything like that. Of course not. And we're here trying to purify ourselves of greed and hatred and confusion. We don't want to be a party to creating it in ourselves or in others. Absolutely. We're not talking moralistic here of good or bad or right or wrong. We're talking about what arises in experience. That's all, you know. And so if somehow we hold the belief that in the world none of this stuff should or is going to arise, then it's as if in ourselves, whenever some aspect of uh, things that shouldn't be out there arise in ourselves, it also shouldn't be happening, should it? And either we should be able to control it, manipulate it, make it go away, or hold on to the right condition so it doesn't come up anymore, right? Or... What is the or? I forgot what the or is. Maybe that was it. Oh, or we should just hold ourselves separate from it, not feel it. But what I've noticed this coming from a lot is the sense we can get into of the ideal of perfection. Not the perfection of just the isness of things, but our ideals of how something should be to be perfect. You know what I mean. You all do that about practice all the time, right? There's some idea of perfect practice. Just what Miyoshin said today in the questions and answers, that someone had said to her they, they felt funny standing up in the hall when they were sleepy because somehow that was an admission they weren't a good yogi. And if you follow that through, somewhere in there's the thread that there's such a thing as a perfect kind of yogi who either never gets sleepy or the sleepiness is always such that the mindfulness is stronger than it, right? As if sleepiness shouldn't exist, right, in the yogi universe. That, it's a simple example, but notice how often we're caught in that, and what's then the response is self-judging. I am not a good yogi, because some aspect of dukkha has visited my experience, uh, and I should be able to be perfect. As if there were such a thing. So how we get into this belief, this unconscious holding to an ideal of perfection, and then you notice, I know this is something that's often talked about, something should be perfect, and as soon as there's one flaw the whole thing's thrown out. You know, that's why we have that expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But that's what we do. I read a, um, quite some years ago, an article I cut out of, I think it was USA Today, some not very particularly literary newspaper. But it was about the prevalence of road rage and... Uh, for those people from overseas, because I talked about this in Switzerland, and they're saying road rage. Not that they don't have it there. They have it there. But not that, not that phrase. Just that getting so angry. You know, you know what road rage is. Losing it, basically. It's a whole long article about the psychology of it. And the psychologist is talking about it. And this is the part I just wanted to quote. That if someone on the road upsets you, that individual's whole identity is encapsulated in this bad thing he did, right? He's not seen as a whole person. He just becomes all of it. He's that bad person who cut in front of you. That encapsulates their whole identity, right? 
And then there's an urge to express your aggression on this anonymous other, to think I can't let him get away with this. The thin veneer of civilization is removed. (laughs) With self-judging, we're doing that same thing to ourselves. I wasn't mindful in that whole lap of walking. You know, I can't let myself get away with this. Really. And then he says, he goes on to say that in a car, you feel like you're invincible because in a way you're separated. It provides a buffer zone that makes it easier to dehumanize the other driver. Easier than it would be, for instance, if you were walking down a crowded hallway. Face-to-face contact with others acts as a restraint, and people are much more polite. I read that part because Sayada Upandita likes to describe mindfulness as coming face-to-face with the moment of experience. So in a way, when there's something in your experience arising that you don't like, that's suffering, and we'll get to some aspects of that in a minute, There's that immediate sense of pulling back. You're not meeting it face-to-face at all. And in that pulling back, it's like on the road, you know, the thin veneer of civilization, or moment-to-moment mindfulness is removed, and all the aggression and the fear or the aversion, the judging can come out in response to that unpleasant experience. But the only person you have to take it out on is guess who, you know? And so it just comes right back at yourself as further proof that you're not perfect. And guess what? You're not. <laughs> it's, like, it's really amazing how we, how we do this to ourselves. So we do it to ourselves, to spiritual scenes, to perfect practice, to other people, to teachers, to you name it. So just beginning to notice this idea of it should be perfect, and how judging arises from when we notice that ideal isn't being met, crumbling. So this denial system of whatever forms of aversion, but in particular judgment, self-judgment, it'll tend to arise most strongly in us, I think, when what isn't deeply accepted, either as being part of the world, then arises in us, whether it's unreliability, uncontrollability, the flux and unstoppability of constant change, or when particular aspects of our mind-body patterns arise that are most deeply painful and unacceptable to us. Sort of like the inner corollary to famine or war, you could say. On the level of mentally, if we think about it, it's totally unacceptable that I could be feeling this. You know? So when that level of dukkha arises, that's when our denial systems kind of kick in the most strongly. So just noticing, probably you already have quite a list, but just noticing what those particular experiences are in you, because it can help you kind of be a little flag to notice what reaction is going on. So it can be in the body, you know, if the body is sick, or it's tired, or it's old, or it's painful, or it's weak or you have some mental image of the unacceptability of how you look, you know, or whatever, that's really painful. Or emotions. It couldn't just be your emotions are volatile, or you're feeling vulnerable, or you're not feeling any emotions, or you're feeling sadness, or you're feeling self-hatred, or whatever emotions are coming are not just only mentally unacceptable, but it's so deeply ingrained that it's unacceptable that somehow your attention can't even quite go there. Remorse over past actions. You know, sometimes you just get floods of memories of things you've done that were unskillful, and it can be so hard to be with it. Self-hatred. 
feelings of helplessness, feelings of worthlessness. Well, the list could go on and on, whatever your particular flavor is. And seeing that we can't control that, when our deepest, most unacceptable aspects arise in our experience, that habit, that knee-jerk reaction you know, of pulling back, it tends to happen so quickly and feel so natural that often we don't even recognize that that's what happened. And then the denial system, in this case the self-judging, comes in right away. You know? So say there's a feeling of helplessness or a feeling of self-hatred. Not even quite consciously noticed, but suddenly you notice that as you're walking or eating or sitting, everything you do is followed by a vitriolic kind of self-judgment, you know? And you may not even notice that for a while because that's also so familiar, but it keeps feeding on itself and spiraling, you know? And you'll, in a weird way, these self-judgments, or if you're a different type than the judgments, you know, like Joseph sitting there judging everybody else, but either way, there's judgings coming, distracting, distracting from whatever the particular suffering was. As I said, it's a weird denial system because it's a suffering one, but the function it's serving is keeping our face-to-face attention well away from just dropping into the self-hatred or the helplessness or the sense of being a total klutz or whatever your particular thing is at that time. And usually I've found that when it's some particular personal suffering arising on that level, that depth, the thought is as if I would die if I had to feel this. You know, it has that quality of intensity. And so rather than feel this, I'll just sit here and tell myself, you're lifting your fork wrong, you're chewing too noisily, you're taking too much food, you're breathing too loud, you're sitting like a schlump, you're standing up too quickly, you made a noise with your chair, you bumped in, you know. And that's in two seconds. By the time you get to your room after lunch, it's like, you know, wonder it's unbearable, you know. And that's our way of not just feeling hopeless, which it's a lot easier, I tell you, to just feel totally worthless and land in the middle of it than to go through a half an hour even of all that judgment or just to feel the judgment. So let me suggest another alternative. I don't know if it's possible for us, but this it's another way of viewing our non-perfection, even just in the meditation, even just you didn't get up from lunch perfectly and mindfully. Uh, in teaching in Burma, in Chaswa this last year. And it's a retreat for Westerners where, um, with Sayadaw Ulakana. So Sayadaw Ulakana will give a talk one day, and then I was, I was, Michelle or Stephen Smith usually teach it, and I was teaching it with Stephen this last year. Then one of us would talk the next day. And when Sayadaw talks, after he gives a talk, very kind of straight a Burmese talk, then He'll leave and we'll just take if there's any questions or confusions, you know, or clarifications. And so he'd been talking, very strict noting practice, you know, noting if anger arises, noting anger, anger, and then it goes away and then you come back to the breath. And so someone raised his hand later and said, but I know it two or three times, it doesn't go away and I can't, and I don't know what to do and what do you do? And then we just gave the whole instructions we give here, you know, feel it in your body and notice the sensations, you know, and just how to be with it further. And then after that, one of the the men who was translating, a a good friend, a very well-educated Burmese man, he was talking to me and he said, I never heard instructions like that. You know, it was really so helpful. I said, oh, really? He said, well, you know, for us, it doesn't go away in two notes either. (laughs) Which actually surprised me. I said, oh, really? <laughs> so then what? He goes, well, then we say, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> I would like to suggest 
That's a possibility. It doesn't go, it didn't go away. I can't do it right. I'm not the perfect yogi. I am so riddled with anger. I am so, you know, on and on and in. And it's like, oh, well, never mind. (laughs) Just try to imagine how that might feel the next time you catch yourself in heavy self-judging because of whatever, whatever. Oh, this is arising. Never mind. (laughs) See how much space that leaves. Ajahn Sumedho says that one is witnessing the unpleasantness in a situation, in a thing, in a person, or in oneself without creating anything around it. This is what he calls metta. Just witnessing, feeling, being it, not, you know, from 10 miles away, face to face, without creating anything around it. You could call it metta, you can call it compassion, you can call it mindfulness, pure awareness, you know, whichever flavor it has. It's very much like um, the two darts that I read the other night where the Buddha's talking about the difference between an awakened and an unawakened person. And the unawakened person feels an, an unpleasant physical sensation and then berates and laments and carries on and shoots themselves with a second arrow. And an awakened person feels the first arrow and doesn't create anything around it. This is really the shifting of our patterns. So what arises in our experience, whatever it is you're lost in judgment or self-judgment about, or not lost in noting, judging, 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 judging 7,312, but noticing it, feeling it. What's arising? Our personality patterns, the physical sensations, you know, our loneliness, whatever it is, the self-hatred, the anger, the sleepiness. In this moment, what's arising is simply arising due to previous conditions. You know, it's the vipaka, the result of previous kama. It's not in our control. It's not our fault in terms of if I could do something right, this shouldn't have happened. It is happening, and nothing can change that fact. Nothing needs to. How our consciousness, awareness, is meeting this moment of arising experience, that's the creation of the new comma in the moment. And that's what really is changing everything. That's what's reconditioning our patterns or habits of mind, so to speak. So anger's arising. We're really feeling it, but we can just be there without creating anything around it. That's developing compassion. That's developing mindfulness. That's shifting the pattern from aversion and judgment to freedom. It doesn't necessarily feel good because the thing you're feeling is still anger or unpleasantness or sorrow, you know? And we tend to be so focused on the thing that we don't notice the response. But notice the space around and not creating anything around it. That's key. That's really important. One of my favorite lines from the Buddha is where the mind dwells frequently towards that it will naturally incline. So if self-judging comes up a lot in our experience, it's because in the past our mind has dwelled there frequently. Hating it, well, somehow you think that helps. (laughs) Hating it doesn't make the mind have dwelt less in the past there, does it? All it does is keep that going into the future. Seeing, oh, self-judging feels like this, space. Oh, worthlessness feels like this, space. I can't do this right. I'll never be able to do this right. I can't even feel this, this worthlessness. I can't do it. Blah, blah, blah. feels like this. Just move into the space around it. You don't have to fix or manipulate or stop or change. Just that switch from aversive reactivity, avoiding, denying, to being there, 
that is the switch. And that is active, actually, the cultivation of compassion, of freedom. Joko Beck says, can we find in ourselves a willingness to rest in the confusion and the unpleasantness? Well, sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. And that's okay. But just to have that possibility, oh, can I find the willingness just for this moment, not into the endless future, just for this moment, can I find the willingness to rest in the confusion and the uncertainty? That's the Dhamma, that's peace. And it's also a crack up sometimes to see how much trouble we'll go to to avoid even the projected idea of how something might be, how suffering something might be. We'll go to endless trouble to avoid just turning around and facing it. Have you ever noticed that? I remember one time um, a friend was wanting me to go teach a retreat with them. And we have to organize our schedules. I know it's in the moment. We're organizing in the moment, but for two years ahead. And so you have to kind of imagine how you're going to feel in two years. I mean, who knows? And what's going to be going on in this? But anyway, this friend wanted me to teach this retreat with them. It was, would have been a very crowded, really crowded my schedule. And I knew really physically it was too much and a lot of traveling. But it was someone I hadn't taught with much, a good friend. And I was, could feel the fear come up that in saying no, it would be so unpleasant. You know, they would be hurt. I would feel bad. I'd lose the friendship and all this stuff that I went through weeks of trying to talk myself into going to do this retreat, which would have been endless suffering. And the weeks when I was trying to talk myself into it, I was afraid to make the phone call to say no, was also a huge amount of suffering because of imagining how unpleasant it would be to make the phone call to say no, which in the event when I did it, of course, it was fine. You know, the person understood. It was no problem. And it'd go to all these machinations, you know, not to feel something instead of, oh, okay, I can't do it. I'm disappointing you. I'm disappointing me. It feels like this. Nothing created around it. It's so much simpler. That's kind of the perfection of isness, just what is. But when we're caught in the aversion, the self-judgment, the fear, we can't see clearly. We can't evaluate clearly. In fact, our whole perception's distorted. You know, when Joseph was talking about perception the other night, some of you have even mentioned a good place here is the radiator sounds. And quite a few people have mentioned noticing the overlay, the mood or mind puts on the perception of the radiator sound. Like you can notice, I've noticed this, if there's a real aversion in the mind or fear and the radiator starts, and someone told me once that it feels like explosions going off, little, you know, aversive, harsh little things. Other times I'm in some kind of peaceful place and it sounds like Russian choral music, you know, or whatever. It's really funny to watch how the mind does that. But when we're in self-judgment, you cannot evaluate clearly. And if you, if you hear nothing else in this talk, get this. If you recognize self-judging is happening, really not just a thought, but you can tell you're really in it, and you're mindful of it, but you're really in it, you cannot trust any perception or evaluation that you make of your practice. Because it won't be, believe me, based on seeing clearly. I'm really in self-judging, but I can tell I'm just being lazy and I need to push a little harder, is the classical one. You just don't know. You have no clue. And if you can just know that, I mean, I really, it's been a huge relief to me. I recognize self-judging coming in. I feel it as a certain physical feeling. And I say, okay, now I know I can't trust any of my perceptions about myself. And that's a huge relief. I'll still have them. They're angry at me. Oh, look at how they're looking at me. Oh, I'm doing my practice wrong. Oh, what did they say? That's what they said. They're directing it at me. You know, I'm, you know, forget it. You just don't have a clue. Can you just be willing to rest in not knowing, like Joko Beck said, and it'll come and go like a cloud, 
as all states of mind do. So knowing that when we're in that reaction, that disconnect of aversion, of self-judging, we can't make clear decisions because we can't see clearly. So coming back and just meeting the experience, it's not about passive submission. It's about when we meet experience face-to-face, worthlessness, physical pain, sleepiness, whatever it is, we see it clearly, we can respond with discriminating wisdom. It's much more obvious then. An example I often use is um, quite some years ago when I was developing uh, what turned into an autoimmune disease that affected my joints and my tissues and stuff. And uh, it was much worse some years ago. I mean, that's still why I, I don't sit cross-legged. But when it was coming on, and people, the doctors didn't know what it was, there was a lot more physical pain and discomfort and all kinds of various weird symptoms. And I could see my mind getting into all kinds of fear of the future and, you know, of this, and I'll never be able to do X, Y, Z again. And at that point, I was so grateful for practice because I could see the mind going into the future very clearly and go, but that's not happening. Just come back. That I could do. I really noticed right away. But for quite some time, I didn't notice a certain quality of uh, self-blame or self-judgment the kind of thing sort of we thank New Age spirituality for, which is, you know, if you really had the proper thoughts and you were really spiritual, you know, you wouldn't get sick. Now I can think, well, Ramana Maharshi died of cancer. I really don't aspire to be a lot more spiritual than he. But at the time, I didn't really notice how that would creep in. And so there's this subtle sense, or it wasn't so subtle, to tell you the truth, that somehow I'm a a failure. And besides that, I've been meditating all my life, and now I'm even teaching, and here I am sick. That's pathetic, you know, a real failure. And this stuff was was really quite a lot of suffering, a heaviness, until finally I noticed, sitting, 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 that what was going on was that whenever I would touch, just feel my body, the physical pain or the tightness or something, that was all bound up with, as soon as I feel the uncomfortableness, right away would come in this judgment of spiritual failure. Never mind what if I die from it, just the spiritual failure. All this spiral negativity and self-judgment. And as a result of all of that, the attention was just never connecting with the body. And all of this, people were saying, you should just go, cold also affects me. And this is a great environment for that. So people were saying, well, you should just go live in Arizona. Just take it easy. Live a quiet life. Don't teach. Take care of yourself. And then I tried, well, maybe it's uh, allergic. So I tried a really severe diet for me, severe. No wheat, no dairy, no sugar, no caffeine. Now, that really cheered me up for a few months. <laughs> and finally, sometime in a sitting, I remember sitting over there, suddenly, just for whatever reason, I just saw, oh, I'm hating this body as if it failed me, it betrayed me. Let me just feel it. And there's a whole sense of compassion as if cradling this body wasn't personal at all. Wow, you're really suffering, and I'm sitting here hating you. You know, that's really useful. And it didn't even have that cynical aspect. It was just, oh, wow, that hurts. You know, may you be happy. May you be peaceful. And then really healing had nothing to do anymore with getting better or not dying or anything. It was just being with what is, and the whole dynamic changed. And really out of that, I found I made much more, to me, intelligent decisions about how to live my life rather than acting out of fear. They may not have looked intelligent to the world at large because the first thing I did, some friends were going to India and they said, why don't you come? I said, oh, great, you know, I'll go to India. And instead of that diet, I started drinking a lot of chai and eating a lot of chapatis and a lot of dairy and yogurt, and I got really happy again. And... (laughs) 
I felt better, too, to tell you the truth. Um, but it was just, it was really a sense of just saying, oh, yeah, this is possible. I can do this. I don't really know what's going to happen in the future, but I don't have to live you know, as if three feet away from my body and in fear and self-blame. And that, that whole thing kind of cut. And really, it's that willingness to just dive into the wave, you know, instead of running from it. Not in order to make something happen, but just to see what's what. That's the place of peace, of ease. Being with the dukkha without creating anything around it is not at all passive submission. It's the place that discriminating wisdom and appropriate compassionate response arises. Okay, just one more thing I want to point out about judging and particularly self-judging. And we've talked about it before, so you know it, but I just want to point to it in these terms. And that's the deeply ingrained habit of comparing mana and poly, often translated as conceit. But that, and I know you all know it because you all talk about it a lot, that endless comparing, they're better than me, they're worse than me, they're the same as me, or comparing to yourself in the past. I'm worse now than I was last year. I'm doing better now than I did three days ago. You know? Or comparing ourselves to some made-up ideal about the future, back to that comparison, and that's never a good comparison. Or even I'm doing the same. It's very deeply ingrained and subtle of the ten fetters, so-called, the different um, calaces that are abandoned through the different four layers of awakening, conceit is the last one to go. So you can drop judging yourself because you notice it's arising. You know, you're not an arhat. Okay, can you live with that? And (laughs) drop judging yourself about it. But notice how how suffering comes whenever there's comparing. Besides the fact that it's so exhausting, isn't it? You can't just walk from here to the dining room. You've got to assess every pair of feet that goes by. And if you're trying not to look, you can't even bear not to look. You want to look so you can can compare, so you can feel crappy about yourself (laughs) or good about yourself because you're better, and then you feel crappy because you were feeling like you were better and you were being conceited. There's no way out. It's a suffering state. And the real suffering about it, if you look at it, is that it's all about me, isn't it? The root delusion of all self-judgment, of all aversion and comparing is this incessant referencing of every single experience when we're comparing. It all references back to me, doesn't it? Even if you're judging yourself negatively, you're the worst being here, it's completely self-centered, isn't it? totally self-cherishing in a weird kind of way. It's also like a, an upside-down way of experiencing interconnectedness. It is. Every single thing that happens somehow refers back to you. So you're connected to everything. You're the center of everything. Everything everybody does is either to make you feel bad about yourself or annoy you, you know? But... The interconnectedness is there, you know, nothing doesn't affect us. So you might just notice that. You can't get away from being part of everything. But just to notice, notice how often comparing arises, how often it leads to self-judging. And then rather than get into trying to stop it, bring your attention back to just feel the suffering aspect of that. Oh, comparing feels like this. Judging feels like this. Just with that compassionate attention that doesn't have to create anything else around it. And then maybe, even from a moment of that being totally caught in it, it can switch to a moment like when I was looking at the moon tonight. But it could be anything. Just that there's a moment where there's no comparing whatsoever but real presence. You're not comparing to your past. You're not comparing yourself to someone outside. You're not comparing this moment to any other moment or thought, 
it's ever been. In fact, it's timeless. And in that not reaching out to anything else for good or bad or comparing or judging, there's no self because there's no creation of other. It just doesn't apply. There's no self to get rid of. There's no anatta experience you have to have. It's just what it is. Simply the mind released into fullness of presence without needing to compare to anything else. That's all. Just that piece of isness. Just for a moment, can that be enough? Let's just sit for a moment. 